Christ's message to us is not simply about a nice, loving God, but a creator closer to us than a parent, passionate beyond words about our well-being. Betsy Rosen invites us to gaze unabashedly at this spiritual reality through the lens of one of Jesus' more fiery teachings and reminds us of what God intends for the human family. Yesterday morning, while out for an early walk, it struck me that there was an unusually large number of runners and cyclists on the bike path, some in groups chatting, if they were women, others calling over, to their, over their shoulders to their friends as they rode along in single file with their bright spandex outfits. After a week or more of cold morning fog up in my neck of the woods, it seemed as if the whole world had left its occupations, offices, desks, houses, babies, sometimes the babies were with them, to be outside in the beautiful world an hour later, <clears throat> when the sun was higher in the sky, I passed many of the same runners on their way back, some still chatting, some intense and covered with sweat. It was not possible to know for sure why each group or each person was running so hard, whether towards a goal of some sort, pushing themselves to the limit, or just for the pleasure of it. But there they were. Then I returned to my office and struggled again with the texts we've heard this morning. As they're similar in many ways to last Sunday's lessons, which Mother Esty referred to as hair-raising, listening to them, we may feel ourselves to be leaning into a hard wind with both the prophet Isaiah and Jesus warning us about God's anger and judgment and how things are going to turn out really, really badly if we don't shape up. There is good news as well behind and within these passages, and I hope we'll see that. But if life teaches us anything, it seems to me, it teaches us that it's very dangerous to try to avoid or deny the more painful aspects of reality, to ignore the pitfalls that both Isaiah and in particular Jesus are warning us about. Because just as with any other sign of danger ahead, their purpose ultimately is to make us pay attention when our nature leans, leads us to look the other way. <clears throat> the passage from Isaiah we heard first begins beautifully, poetically, like something from the Song of Songs. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. But then, as is so often the case with the prophets, it shifts rather quickly into something more unsettling. Because in spite of all the love and attention given to the vineyard by the beloved, who is God, something has gone terribly wrong. Though the beloved has planted and dug the vineyard, meaning us, has pruned and nourished it, it has yielded not sweet grapes, but wild ones, small, sour, not suitable for the wine of celebration. So at this point, the same God, again, the beloved, 
who was so full of watchful anticipation and hope for his vineyard, reveals himself to be punishing and full of wrath. Since the vineyard bears only wild grapes, he will neglect it, will make it a waste, allow it to be overrun with briars and thorns, even command the clouds to withhold their life-giving rain. Are we reading this right? I think we are. But luckily for us Christians, we know that we have put this unappealing tribal God behind us. The God we recognize in the person of Jesus is of another order entirely. A nice God, not this harsh, unyielding authority figure we all believe we have outgrown. Jesus wouldn't let us suffer like that, no matter what we'd done. Understanding our weakness, he is forbearing and forgives. Don't get me wrong, all this is true. That is what Jesus does. That is, for the most part, what he reveals to us in his person and his teachings about the nature of God. Yet we need to be careful not to underestimate Jesus, not to drift into thinking of him or of God as being like this version of the 23rd Psalm I came across last week with credit going to Jim Burklow at Sausalito Presbyterian. This is the Marin County version of the 23rd Psalm. God is my life coach. I have it made. I kick back in her backyard lounge chair or relax in her hot tub during our sessions. With her guidance, everything goes smoothly. She restores my self-esteem. She tells me the right way to handle things, so it's no wonder that I recommend her to other clients. <laughs> it goes on, very funny. Maybe we all dip into this idea of a feel-good God from time to time, but we can't really get around the difficult passages about Jesus and from him, the hard sayings, they're often called, and these are things it's taken me a lifetime to begin to understand, if I understand them at all. In the brief glimpse we catch of Jesus in today's gospel, he is driven to anger and exasperation at his disciples because they aren't preparing themselves, aren't listening to his warnings about what lies ahead of them, the confusion and despair that will threaten to divide them in the wake of his crucifixion, which lies just ahead, the persecution and even death that awaits more than one of them, the fire of the Pentecost event that will blow them off their feet and into the future. Seeing all this ahead of them and aware that they haven't the faintest idea of what he's talking about, he calls them hypocrites and berates them for not being able to read the signs that are everywhere around them, even though they can easily interpret the clouds or winds to predict sudden changes in the weather. Hypocrites. That strikes me as a strange choice. I would have thought maybe idiots or maybe dopes. That's the way I feel when I identify with the hapless disciples. But he must mean 
something else. He must mean that they're pretending to be something they're not, pretending to understand more than they really do about who he is and the nature of his mission. Yet this outburst from Jesus, the teacher, to his friends and followers, though angry, is not the kind of anathema we human beings pronounce on our enemies, evildoers, outcasts, infidels. You're wrong, you're bad, I'm going to throw you out. But is almost its exact opposite. You whom I love, Jesus says, whom I chose, who have responded to my presence among you and to the sound of my voice, who have learned from me what it means to be in loving community, even you don't get it. It breaks his heart. Ultimately, as the whole message of the scriptures tells us, not just one little piece that we take out to read on Sunday morning, it is through an intermingling, even fusing of these two things, both passionate love, God's love for us, and the painful lessons we learn the hard way that we are able to grow spiritually and to thrive. It's like when a child runs out into the street. He's been told by his mother time and time again, don't run into the street. Stop and look both ways. You'll be hurt. And the child runs into the street and the car screeches to a halt and the child falls and is barely saved and not hit by the car. And the mother comes running down the block and picks up her child. And what does she do? Does she hold him close and say, I love you so much, I'm so relieved? No. She shakes him and says, I told you not to do that. Are you crazy? You could have gotten yourself killed. And then she throws her arms around him and hugs him. It's the passion she feels for what she almost lost. If we were lucky, we had parents or someone else who knew and loved us well enough to perform that saving function for us. The world is filled with those who did not. The hard sayings that recur throughout the Bible seem to many people abhorrent. What can this have to do with a loving God? Many of the deepest and most strengthening passages have been ruined for many people by the way that the fundamentalists of all stripes have used them to get people to stay within a narrow set of rules that they have made, to serve God and God's world through fear and not through love. But in the end, they can't be ruined, these passages from the Old and New Testament alike, because they form a whole, a whole history and a whole way of looking at and experiencing the world around us and the world within. And because the God who spoke to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and Rachel, the God to whom David poured out his heart in the praise and lamentation of the Psalms is the same God whom Jesus called Abba, Father, in whose presence he not only understood and accepted his own path, but within whose goodness 
and beauty he was always moving and in whose presence he refreshed his own spirit. Okay, we've done the heavy lifting. (laughs) Now let's end with something lighter. As I was moving through all these thoughts over the space of the last couple of weeks, something kept trying to swim up into my consciousness, wanting to be heard. A word that carried a sense of something endless and wonderful, as if to balance God's passionate anger with its opposite gift. Pleasure. The opening word came to me first, followed quickly by the rest, a line from a familiar hymn. Yes, that was it. Pleasure leads us where we go. Pleasure leads us where we go. Pleasure, not fear. That is what God is offering us that he wants us to be ready for in all the moments of beauty and satisfaction that nourish our lives. Like being incredibly hot and sweaty after a long, difficult run, miles and miles along a gravel path, then up the hills and around a lake, following that same path, because it is the same path, into a redwood grove, pushing aside the debris on the ground and finding a cold, clear stream of water that we drink from with our cupped hands as much as we like. listening to the sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley, dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.